But the women, please sign up. Men, you don't need to sign up, but women, please sign up so we can get an idea for a head count, whether you're coming to the 1230 or the 630. There is a sign-up sheet at the informational counter. And then also there's an, a sign-up sheet there for a Valentine's Day date night babysitting extravaganza. So here at the church, uh, the children's ministry is going to be sponsoring a free night of babysitting on Valentine's Day for you as parents, 5.30 to 8 p.m. Please sign up for that. Curtis has asked that it would only be potty-trained children. Something about not wanting to change dirty diapers. And um, I said, Curtis, Jesus would change dirty diapers. <laughs> but... Yeah, Curtis isn't Jesus, so he's got a lot. Him and him and Jesus have a lot in common, but probably not that. So please, uh, uh, children um, without uh, a potty trained only, and um, men, you have uh, the opportunity to take your wives out and have free babysitting for yourselves on that evening. And then coming up Saturday, February 11th at 8:30 here at the church, our men's breakfast. So next Saturday. Please come join us. We'll have food and fellowship and, and lots of fun together. Time of worship would be great. Love to have you. All right, we're in Hebrews, continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 6. I'm really struggling with my voice today. I want to apologize beforehand. Um, this is the third time that uh, taught Saturday night and then first service and now. Um, and I've been sick this last week with a head cold. Um, and then to, to make things even more complicated, I brought on some self-induced um, pain in my throat and sinuses. As, um, you guys know that I've been helping out with the high school wrestling. Well, this yesterday was our league championship tournament. And about halfway through it, I'm like, oh, my voice is going, uh, screaming and cheering and coaching the boys, who, by the way, took second place. Yeah. And our girls took first place, so yeah, go Tigers. But my, my voice suffered, so I stopped screaming about halfway through and started eating Jolly Ranchers and Ricolas, and so if I'm, if I'm clearing my throat and struggling, I apologize. You know the reason for why. All right, Hebrews chapter 6. Last week, um, we concluded a passage of Scripture. You guys know. Um, what that was all about if you were here if you weren't what you want to know is is last week's passage of scripture Hebrews chapter 5 is so foundational to what we're going to be reading about in this next chapter and so as we start chapter 6 we need to remember the encouragement found at the end of chapter 5 and the encouragement was to become spiritually mature okay when we talk about maturity I think the example for us is really it follows the path or the thought of as human beings, we grow and mature, right? We're born as babies, we grow and mature, we become adults, that kind of a thing. There's a similar process through that analogy that is given to us in regards to spiritual maturity. And the author at the end of chapter 5 gives us some examples of becoming spiritually mature. One of the things that he says is that spiritually mature people desire the deeper things found within the Word of God. Okay? We desire the deeper things found in the Word of God. They're not hidden things, but they're things that inspire us. They're things that prompt our mind, our heart, where we just don't pass on 
we don't read them and then just pass on. We stop. We meditate on them. We receive them. We perhaps go to other passages of Scripture as cross-references we study to, to get a bigger idea of the things that God's trying to speak to us. And in, and in light of that, he also says that spiritually mature believers also become skilled in the word of righteousness. Now, that righteousness can be a very Christian or religious word that often loses its meaning to us in application. But righteousness, in a very simple way, it means to go the right way, to do the right thing. And God's word is the word of righteousness because it, it instructs us in God's way, which is the right way. It tells us and teaches us how to do the right thing. But becoming skilled in the word of righteousness means that we take what God has said, what he's revealed to it, and then we then live by it. We make the choice to go, this is what God says, and so I'm going to do it. Mature believers are skilled in the word of righteousness. There's application brought forth into our lives because of it. And, you know, the Apostle James, he, he, he writes about it and he says, hey, let us not just be hearers of the word, but what? He says, doers also right skilled in the word of righteousness and lastly the thing in chapter five that was brought to mention about becoming spiritual mature these things that are going to carry us into chapter six is this warning to not be spiritually apathetic you know we you guys all know what it means to become apathetic we live in a world by my humble opinion that's full of apathy where we've compromised where we're just not cared, we don't care about excellence in so many ways societally. Perhaps in work, and in, 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 I mean, I don't want to get into a whole bunch of it, but I think the principle stands and you understand it. But mature believers, men and women who are mature, men who, people who are adults forsake apathy in their everyday life. They choose to do the right thing and be excellent at it because that's what we know mature adult people do so mature christians in regards to those who are growing spiritually don't settle for spiritual apathy we go i want excellence in this area i want the best that god has for me i'm not going to become lazy or dull of hearing in regards to my walk i'm going to take the spiritual disciplines that god puts forth and 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 walk in them you know i can become very apathetic in my physical exercise life i even have a really nice gym that we built at our house and there are days i wake up in the morning i'm like ah no and the other days like yeah and i get in there and, and i lie to myself and say this is going to be awesome and I, I i think it is afterwards but in the process but we can if you become apathetic you miss out on the full benefits that god has for you that's the idea so in light of this encouragement to become spiritually mature hear this we need to keep in mind as we think about the relationship or the analogy aspect of it in regards to growing, listen, no one comes into this world um, without being born as a baby, right? You don't get here as a human being without being born as a baby because it's the only way to get here. And no matter how much we love kids, uh, and we do love our kids, but if, if <laughs> no matter what stage of life you're in with your kids, we all have a desire for them to grow up, Right? to move out, to not keep moving back, depending on what stage you're in. Because we ultimately, not because we don't love our kids, we want them to enjoy a full life as mature adults and all the benefits that come along with that, right? Likewise, we all start as babes in Christ. That's part of what we've been 
been, been told as we've read through Hebrews, and we see this in other aspects of the epistles written to the early church. When we come to the Lord, there's spiritual birth, and we're a babe in Christ. We're spiritually in that sense. However, <clears throat> when we think about God as our Heavenly Father and our relationship with our own kids that we have, God has the same desire for us to grow up. And this is why He calls us here in chapter 6 to be mature spiritually. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Therefore, leaving the discussion leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, completeness, maturity. That's, that's really what that word is defining in the Greek. Not laying again, not saying again, not returning again, just the foundational, the, the, this foundation of repentance from did works and faith towards God, the doctrine of baptism and the laying of hands and the assurance, excuse me, laying hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And the fact of the matter is this. If you have kids or if you've had kids, you know, or if you were a kid, which we all were, is that kids want to be grown-ups, don't they? Why do they, why do they want to be grown-ups? Because they want to do grown-up things. They want the benefits that adults have. But you know what kids don't want? And maybe adults too. They don't want to stop doing the things that kids do or take on adult responsibilities, right? I was doing just, I was just putting a, a, a Google search, this common phrase in a society that's out there today. You know, I don't want an adult today. You know, there's a whole Facebook page dedicated to it. You can go look it up. You can be a follower. There's all kinds of crazy memes and people saying things, I don't want an adult today. You know, and I believe that we can have the same kind of mentality when it comes to our spiritual growth. Think about it. The things that we're being warned here about. In that we want to grow up spiritually, but we don't want to stop doing the things that spiritual unbeliever, unbeliever or spiritual, spiritual things we, that uh, immature believers do. We don't want to set those things aside. Nor do we want the responsibilities that come with being a mature believer. However, if we're going to make spiritual progress, we have to leave, hear the word, childhood things behind and go forward in spiritual growth. There's a danger if we don't, folks. And that's found in this chapter. There's a danger if we don't. And this is why and this is what, excuse me, verse 1 is speaking about. Look, as it instructs us, as you read there, to leave behind once and for all the elementary lessons of the teachings of Christ. Not leave behind these principles, but the lessons, the teaching of it, the constant coming back to it. You know, it's kind of like this. You, you ever train your kids? You ever teach your kids? Just some really ba basic foundational things. And it's like, a week later, it's like they didn't even hear what you had to say. They forgot the lesson. It's like, why do we have to keep coming back to this? I have better for you. I have more for you. And that's the idea. See, in other words, I don't know where it's at nowadays. Probably preschool is when it starts and maybe in the home. But in regards to the public school system, who knows? But um, back in my day, um, when I was in kindergarten, that's where I learned my ABCs. Maybe you too. Learned it by song. A, B, C, D. It stuck with me. Right? 
I learned the ABCs. And we learned them. Why? Why did we learn the ABCs? We learned them so that we could go on to learn how to read words. You can't read words if you don't know the alphabets, the letters of the words, the sounds and the shapes and all of that to be able to read words. And then from there, we took the ability to read words and we put the words together and, and it made sentences and we read sentences and then eventually we read whole books. There's this process we continued on with in our learning, in our maturity. And likewise, once we learn the elemental things of Christ, the, the elementary things of Christ, we need to take what we've learned and go on to learn other things. God has more for us. He has better for us. In this phrase, let us go on in verse 1, look at it here. It can also be translated as let us be carried forward. And perhaps it's a better way of saying it because it reminds us of this building process that we're talking about. Where a foundation is being laid. And then we build upon that foundation. And it reminds us, ultimately, I think of this, that it's God who enables us to grow spiritually as we yield to Him, as we receive His Word, and as we then act on it, as we live according to it, right? And we all know this, that babies do not make themselves grow, do they? Babies don't make themselves grow. Rather, they grow because it's the normal thing for a healthy baby to do. One who eats and sleeps and gets some kind of form of exercise. Likewise, Christians grow. We grow because, hear this, it's the natural, normal thing for us to do it's not natural it's not normal for us to not grow spiritually it's very unhealthy for us and it's a natural normal thing for us to do when we yield to god i'm going to say it again when we receive his word and when we act upon it and in light of this, the ABCs of our faith are then now listed in these verses that follow. And in total, there are six foundational truths of the Christian life that are detailed. I'm not going to teach them to you again. I believe you all know them, but I'm going to simply break them down for us as we go forward. And as we go through these truths, I think it's best to look at them in three sets. Repentance and faith. Baptism and the laying on of hands, the second set. And lastly, this third set, if you look there in Scripture, it's this resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment of God. <clears throat> and we also need to look in the light of the fact that these truths were not exclusive to Christianity. These were foundational truths of the faith of the Hebrew people. And we know this to be true because our Christian faith is based upon the Jewish faith. Christianity doesn't do away with Judaism. It's the completion of it in that sense. Our Christian faith is the fulfillment of Judaism. So now the first two here that we have, faith and repentance, hear this. There are both things that are directed towards God. In regards to the ABCs of our faith, this being a foundational pillar, it's an A, if you will. Ah, A, ah, ah, right? Repentance and faith are directed towards God, and they mark the beginning of our spiritual life. Think about it. Without repentance and faith, what is there spiritually? 
there is no spiritual life apart from repentance and faith. And I'll even say this, there's no spiritual growth apart from repentance and faith. It continues on, and we'll see this at the end of this chapter as there's some mention of it. And to repent, just for the sake of clarity, not again laying the elementary principles of Christ, but to repent means to change one's mind about sin and to change the direction as we turn away from sin and turn to God. Into discussion. But in light of this, we understand that repentance is, is let's, ma- let's make sure what we, we know what it's not. It's not just a sorrowful feeling. It's not just this, I, I regret that. I feel bad about that. Repentance and faith go together. Why is there repentance and faith? Repentance and faith go together because once a person repents, right? Once we turn away from sin, we are then able to exercise a faith in God. Why? Because we turn away from sin and what do we do? We turn to God and put our faith in Him. Repentance and faith. For why do we turn to God? For forgiveness of our sin that we've just turned away from. And furthermore, for sanctification. That process that God does in us through the power of Holy Spirit where He roots out the sinful attitudes and the inward part of it. It's one thing just to change the behavior, but God wants to change us in the heart, right? sanctification he wants to get the heart of the issue the next two that we read here baptism and the laying on of hands has to do with a person's ability excuse me has to do with 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 our relationship as believers to fellow believers okay so there's a relational aspect in the elementary things in regards to jesus christ the foundation that we have in him that where we relate to God. But there's also a relational aspect, elementary, elementally speaking, in regards to our interaction with one another. And, and the laying on of hands and baptism, it, it really speaks about this, not in totality, but in part. And when a person repents and trusts in Jesus, we know that there's this command by Jesus to be baptized. And in doing so, we in a sense become part of a fellowship of other believers where we go this is my tribe this is my people i know they're crazy but they're mine i'm one of them and it's this baptism is this outward sign right of this inward spiritual birth that has already taken place and the change that is then experienced as a result of repentance and sanctification and it's a public declaration that not only identifies us with those who have already gone through this but it's an identification with Jesus Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection. Now in regards to the laying on of hands, which is also relational within the church, having to do with a person's relationship with other believers, it's symbolic in two ways. Symbolic. Hear that. Just like baptism is symbolic, the laying on of hands is symbolic in two specific ways, as I can see it in Scripture. The first is of what Paul spoke of in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, where we are told that the laying on of hands is done in order to recognize the work that God has done in a person to recognize it alongside the call that God has on their life. As we set them, as God has set them apart for ministry or an aspect of ministry. But it's also symbolic in regards to the imparting of a blessing. You know, we raise our hands and we lay our hands on one another in regards to imparting a spiritual blessing. Or even as Scripture says, in regards to praying for someone for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it's also symbolic of a physical blessing. We are told to care for one another 
as members of the family of God, giving preference to one another, seeing needs in each other's lives, and stepping into that role. And it's symbolic of the laying on of hands and where we share what God has given to us with those around us because God says to us, what do you have that's not been given to you in the first place? Right? Elementary principles found in Christ. The final two foundational truths is this. The resurrection of the dead and the internal judgment. And they have to do with the future. Things that are yet to come. And think about it. The Old Testament teaches us that the resurrection from death into life was based upon those who came before the coming of the Messiah that were looking for the Messiah is that they were finding salvation in the expectation of the promise of God sending the Deliverer, Jesus, the Son of God. They look forward to the work that would be done for them. On the contrary, for us, we know that this resurrection for us into eternal life, this resurrection of the dead, if you, if you will, that is mentioned here, is found as we look back. The Old Testament saints look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross and we put our faith in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of His power over death and our faith in Him, we have received ourselves this resurrection from death and into life. And, and here's the awesome thing. This was, this was signed, sealed, and delivered on the very first day that we believe. And we said, I believe, I accept you when we profess Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. And so guys, with these elementary principles, okay, of Christ, a transitional point is, is being made clear as we are told that this foundation has been laid and it doesn't need to be laid again. Why do we need to continue to be retaught this over and over and over again and never move forward in our faith? It's a very childlike behavior. Do I need to tell you this again? Do I need to tell you this? And this is what the Apostle Paul or the writer of the author of Hebrews is saying to these Hebrew believers who were stagnant in their faith and were being tempted into areas of unbelief because of persecution, because of hardship. Paul's going, I want to talk to you about some of the deeper things of God, the greater, greater things that God has for you. And he says, we're stuck here because this is what we have to teach you again. And so we read in verse 4 as it continues on, with this thought, please carry this thought. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. It is impossible, he's saying, all these people, this has happened to them, that if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, verses 7 and 8 are key to what we just read. So we're going to read them together. It's a, it's a complete thought. Hear this as there's this analogy that's given in light of what's just said. For the earth, which drinks in the rain and often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected. If there's no fruit being produced, right? And it's near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. 
Think about this for just a second. I'm going to read you a quote from J. Vernon McGee. I love him before we go through this passage. But when we talk about enjoying all the benefits of being an adult, even for ourselves or as we want our kids to grow up and to be mature adults, we also want them as mature adults to be fruitful, to be productive, right? Productive members of society, whatever that looks like. Now think about that in regards to our spiritual growth because God wants the same for us. He wants us to grow and mature into to adults spiritually so that there's fruit being produced, so that we're productive for the kingdom of God. And I think that's what these verses are really directing our attention to. Let me start by saying this. J. Vernon McGee really states how I feel about these verses. Mostly because there's a lot of opinions And I think most of them are taken out of context of what's being presented here about what these verses are saying. He says this, every reverent person, what he really means is every God-fearing person, every reverent person has come to this section with awe and wonder. And every sincere expositor, in other words, a teacher of God's Word, has come to this passage with a sense of inadequacy. And certainly, he says, this is the way I approach it. And I feel the same way. This is a hard passage of Scripture with this warning. And I desire for us to have clarity in what it really means, and I think the only way to do that is to keep it in context. And so I want to let you know that even though it's a difficult passage of Scripture to expound on, I want you to know that if we keep it in context of this call to grow spiritually, right, the thought process hasn't somehow changed here, if we keep it in the context of our call to grow spiritually, I think it will help us to really gain some clarity and and it'll make some sense, but we'll also find application for our lives in it. Now the fact of the matter is, is there are many different interpretations of this passage. And and, and I'm not going to point out all of them. I'm really just going to only point out one common one and then kind of give you my own thoughts in contrast to it. and I'll, I'll tell you what, what I think we're being taught. But to begin with, some think that, that here we're being warned against the sin of apostasy. Okay? What does that mean? It refers to a person who's turned their back on Jesus Christ and has returned to their old life. And according to this line of thinking, the belief is, is that this person, this apostate who once was in Christ and who is now not in Christ, will be lost forever. Okay? That's one line of thinking. However, I think there's some, some problems with there's, there's some holes in this interpretation. To begin with, the Greek word apostasia is not used in this passage. In fact, the Greek verb for fall away, which is given here in verse 6, is the word par ipito. And here's what it means. Now think about this in regards to what we already have learned up to this point about the Hebrew people who were struggling, who were doubting, who were, who were perhaps stumbling in their faith. And they're being challenged and warned to hold true to those things which they had taken hold of from the very beginning. Because that word parapito means to fall alongside, to wander, or to deviate. And so the thought is this with that word. Is, it's not that a person who has turned their back on Jesus, that's not the, the thought, that's not the description, but rather it's a person that stumbled in their faith. That's what's being, this is the, the context of what it's being spoken, this warning to one who has stumbled in their faith. Now I'm here to tell you, I think that's something that we all have done, that we all do, where we stumble in our faith. 
where we doubt, where we have weakness, where we have moments and times of unbelief, but not a forsaking of Christ, not apostasy. See, there's a problem with this thought. Well, there's a lot of problems with this thought in regards to the the apostasy side of it. But one of them is that a person who falls away is lost forever. If you think this is speaking about apostasy, the idea that you conclude is that one who falls away is lost forever. In other words, if this refers to apostasy, then it is saying that once a saved person takes a line of unbelief or turns their back on Christ, they can never be restored to salvation. However, I'm here to tell you that when it comes to interpreting the Bible, there are two rules unchanging rules that must be followed the first is this no one verse of the bible can make any other verse untrue and so if you come to two passages of scripture that seem according to your interpretation to be contradictory to one another you know what that means your interpretation is wrong not god's word and you need to dig a little deeper and take the whole context and the whole counsel of god's word to figure out what you don't understand. Secondly, in regards to rules of interpretation, we always interpret the obscure with the obvious. And there's some obscurity in this passage. There is. But there are other passages of Scripture that are very obvious in regards to salvation and the issue of salvation and the issue of of, of being sustained in our salvation. And the fact of the matter is, is there are endless verses, many verses in the Bible, that assure a true believer that we can never be lost. It tells tells us all the time that even when we're faithless, God is faithful. Furthermore, Jesus said this, that He would never cast out any person who comes to Him. It's not like you've sinned, you know, seven times, 70, and Jesus says, you've reached the magic number, go away. Don't you remember what I told John? It's not like that. Here's, here, let me tell you, sin doesn't send a person to hell. You might be like, what kind of theological thing is He teaching now? You know what sends people to hell? The rejection of Jesus Christ all the way to the day they die. To the very last breath. But at that very last breath, if a person repents and puts their faith in Jesus Christ and asks for forgiveness, Jesus says, I will never turn away those who come to me. Isn't that wonderful? That's hopeful. So in my opinion, a better interpretation... It really follows the idea that the people who are being referred to are believers who have experienced the spiritual blessings of God, but have fallen by the side, they've deviated, and they've entered into sin because of unbelief. You ever do that? Yeah, when we deviate, what do we enter into? When we come off of God's path, we enter into sin. Consequently, they who are being written about and we who are being warned against these things, Scripture makes it clear that we're not really in danger of God's eternal judgment, but we're in danger of God's discipline. God says, I discipline those whom I love. And He disciplines us to bring us back to the right path so that we will turn away from our sin and turn back to Him. 
And he, when we're even, when we look about it in the context of verses in 7 and 8, which we're going to get to, we're also in the danger, we're in the danger of becoming, as Paul warns in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, disqualified by God by, for by being, being used from Him. You know, we're disqualified by you being used by God for His kingdom when we're given over to self and flesh and the lust of this world and the pride of life. That God first wants us to go, I need to turn away from that and turn back to God so that I can be used by God. We're in danger of being disqualified while we're in our sin of being used by God. Both of which result in this. A loss of reward. And not salvation. In other words, verses 4-6 through does not teach that a sinning believer cannot be brought to repentance, but... It teaches us that they cannot be brought back to repentance while they continue on in sin because continuing on in sin is just putting Jesus to shame. Because believers who continue on in sin, you know what they first prove? They prove this. It's profound. They've not repented. <laughs> right? And the illustration of the field here of the earth in verses 7-8 through eight <coughs> that we have here, it relates this truth to the testing of the fires of God. And the point is, God saved us and given us new life in Him, spiritual birth, so that we would grow and become mature and that our lives would then what? Bear fruit. Spiritual fruit. And there is coming a day when our lives, the Bible will tell us, will be tested. It will be tried by fire. And everything that we do or don't do as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, will be examined. And that which has not been approved by God, he says, is going to be burned away. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, I think it connects all the dots for us. It says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Two analogies to bring forth the same truth. Two examples. He says, It's according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let us take heed how we build on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation of what? Christ Jesus. The elementary principles of Christ Jesus, right? If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work, however we build, he says, it will become clear. He says, for that day, with a capital D, referring to a specific time coming up in the, in, in, in the future, he says, that day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Yet, if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss. Sad, but here's the good news. He says, but he himself will be saved as yet so through fire. So in my opinion, I have one. I have armpits. They probably both stink. In my opinion, and I want to be very clear, 
You know, I always try to give you just the, the God's Word, but in these passages that are a little obscure, we have, to, we have to draw some things together and make a conclusion. God's given us the ability to reason, but I hope you see that my opinion is rooted in God's Word. You can have your own opinion. Please do. But my opinion is this, is that the whole message of this passage is that Christians can go backwards in their spiritual lives and bring shame to Christ. But while we are living in sin... We cannot be brought to repentance. We have to, we have to first repent. And when we're in this place, we're in the danger of God's discipline. It makes sense to me. And if a believer continues to live in sin, their lives will bear no lasting fruit. What a sad day when we reach heaven. You know, it's going to be a joyous day, but if you're sitting there and it's like, you got all your works there, right? You're a doer of the Word. You've been, you've been, you've been committed to doing kingdom things and and yet you realize that you had maybe an ungodly motive or you in your spiritual immaturity because you we never grew up in christ we just did childish things you know children think the times they can be doing such great things and you look at it and you go oh (laughs) you know there's really no productivity there's really no value in it at that moment for for the future or for us for eternal things you know, the Bible says we're going to suffer a lot. God's going to apply fire and you're going to see it go poof. And I don't know what that all looks like. I don't. The Bible's not very clear. There's a lot of mystery around it. But here's the deal. I know I want to grow in the Lord because I want what I have, what God calls me to do here in the time that I spend here to have eternal value. Not just for myself, but for God's glory. Because ultimately we're told that what remains, we're going to get crowns for them and we're going to take those crowns and we're going to throw them at the feet of Jesus. And go, not me, but you, you're worthy. And so whatever it looks like, I'm telling you, you're going to want some of that. I want some of that. So in verse 9, we read on, and it says this. Oh, the clock. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your works again, Here it is, the same kind of thought process and context and labor of love which you have shown towards His name. And that you've ministered to the saints and you do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. This idea of continuing on, pressing on, not quitting. That you do not become sluggish, but that you imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. And the last verses of this chapter speak about the promises of God in regards to God giving His oath that what He says is true is true. And these encouraging words after the strong warning that we just read should not be understood to mean that the warnings weren't serious or that the writer was somehow making some kind of hypothetical consequences up. However, these next verses, they just, I think they reveal to us just how much these Jewish believers were really struggling in their faith and were in need of encouragement to continue on, to continue to grow, to pursue and press in. Furthermore, these words of encouragement were an indicator, I think, of the times that we've been talking about and the spiritual danger that they were facing was not so much out of this calculated rebellion towards God, but was probably just a result of the discouragements that they were facing as a result of the persecution they were receiving as as those who were followers of Christ at this time. At this time, there was much hardship, much trial, much persecution. (coughs) There was great temptations for them to go, 
it's, it's, it's just going to be better. It's just going to be easier to give in, to get along, to not stir up the waters, to not, to not shake the boat, if you will. They were being rejected by family members and, and they were considered outcasts and they were excommunicated, even to the point where they weren't even allowed to work in certain situations. So in short, they needed the warning, but they also needed the encouragement. And here was encouragement, the encouragement, don't give up, don't quit, don't lose heart. Why? Because God's not forgot about you. And we can feel like that at times as followers of Christ. We can go, especially of those who are called to, to be workers in His kingdom, where we go, I, I didn't sign up for this. Are you kidding me? Someone hurt my feelings. <laughs> Our persecutions are not the same. I'm not saying they're not real. There can be true hardships in serving Christ. But what the author is writing to them and he's writing to us, he says, God sees. It's worth it. He knows. Don't give up. He's taken an account. And he's going he's gonna to reward you for this in the life that's to come. He promises it. And even though it's been pointed out that it's God who carries us along right into spiritual maturity, it's also true that we have a part. And we must continue to press on as faithful servants of Jesus, even when the disappointments and the hardships of life come. And you know what? We're told to do this with faith and patience, right? And in doing so, we're told to you know, imitate or look to the faith and patience of those who have come before us. And in the context of this, they're referring to the Jewish forefathers. And I love this because those guys were a bunch of knuckleheads in regards to their faith and patience. Abraham is one of them. He's going to be talked about here in just a minute. But there's Isaac and Jacob and David and others. And when you study the historical record of these guys as the Scriptures weigh it out for us, we see that these men who were called to imitate, they did not have a perfect faith. They did not have perfect patience. In fact, like us, there was times of weakness and times of doubting. But here's what we know about them. This is what's being referred to. They didn't give up. They continued on. They continued on in faith even after they stumbled, even after they sinned, even after they doubted. And so too are we called to this. Let's end with this, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, right? Through faith and patience, inheriting the promises, and we're given the reason for why. You know, it's like if the promises of God are no good, then why? Right? Faith and patience in the promises of God. Well, promises of God better be good if we're going to put our faith and patience in them. And so for God made a promise to Abraham because he could not swear, or excuse me, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could not swear, by no one greater he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. And so he had patiently endured. So after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Again, this is an example for us. For men, and now here's the idea behind God's sworn promise. He says, Men do the same thing. Men indeed swear by the greater. And an oath to confirm is for them an end of all dispute. What that means is you and I do it all the time. You're telling something, a story that seems too hard to believe, and you go, no, I swear, I'm telling you the truth. On my uncle so-and-so's grave, I swear, you know? As if your uncle so-and-so was someone greater than you that you would swear by. It's like, I know you might think I'm be lying, but I'm not, I swear. That's, that's, that's what's being referred to. It says, thus God, determining to show more abundantly the heirs 
of promise, the immutability of his counsel, and he confirmed it by an oath. Meaning the promises of God, he confirmed it by an oath. And, and, and what is it that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have this, underline that, a strong consolation. Who have fled for the refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The hope we have as an anchor of the soul, our soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Again, coming boldly right to the throne room of grace, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, back to this discussion of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, being a high priest, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If the worship team wants to come up, I end with this. These verses are really offering us a wonderful argument for the assurance of salvation. If you ever doubt your salvation, the promises that God's made to you because you see your own weaknesses, you see your own lack of faith, your own lack of patience, your sinfulness, you know, come here, read this. And they point out the truth that, hear this, that every aspect of our salvation is conditional upon God's faithfulness and the work that Jesus did. He being the anchor of our soul. God's given us this strong consolation. Charles Spurgeon, speaking about a, a strong consolation, said this, God's strong consolation does not depend upon bodily health. God's strong consolation does not depend upon the excitement of public services or Christian fellowship. God's strong consolation cannot be shaken by human reasoning and God's strong consolation is stronger than our guilty conscience. It's a strong consolation that can deal with the outward trials when a man has poverty staring him in the face and he hears his little children crying for bread when bankruptcy is likely to come upon him through the unavoidable losses when the poor man has just lost his life and his dear children have been put into the same grave and one and when one after another all earthly props and comforts have given away it needs to be a strong consolation then this assurance that we have in God's promises to not give up to continue on to have faith and patience in other words it needs to be a strong consolation then. Not in your pictured trials, he says. Listen, but in your real trials. We all have imaginary trials, right? But we all have real ones. He says, not in your imaginary, whimsied afflictions, but in the real afflictions and in the blustering storms of life to rejoice then and say, though these things be not with me as I would have them, Yet hath he made me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. This is strong consolation. Father, let us take hold of that today and know that you're never wavering, that our hope in you is secure, that you see, that you call us, that you have a plan. Lord, that you take the messed up things and you make them good again. And that there's nothing that can separate us from the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray.